Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm glad that you are listening and I know you're looking forward to interacting with us. Sitting across the desk from me as usual is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Um, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who might be listening to the program. Thank you so much for allowing us to be in your home this evening. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 7.33, and it is time to start another episode of That's Truth here. Now, we had a question that came in from a listener. Good night, Pastor. I would like you to explain Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 for me, please. And if I'm not mistaken, Pastor, I think this is going to take a, a better... Uh, better part of the evening to get to. And before we get there, let's do Ezekiel uh, 33. Ezekiel 33, we have a question. Uh, I guess a lot of people have been reading the book of Ezekiel recently, Pastor. Got multiple questions that have come in. Good night to everyone. Dear Pastor, my question is the scripture in Ezekiel 33, 12 through 16. Is it relevant to the believers who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus? And let me go ahead and read these verses so that we are all on the same page. Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 12 through 16. Therefore, thou son of man, say unto the children of thy people, The righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression, as for the wickedness of the wicked. He shall not fall thereby in the day that he turneth from his wickedness, neither shall the righteous be able to live for his righteousness in the day that he sinneth. When I shall say to the righteous that he shall surely live, if he trust to his own righteousness and commit iniquity, All his righteousness shall not be remembered, but for his iniquity that he hath committed, he shall die for it. Verse 14 says, Again, when I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die. If he turn from his sin, and do that which is lawful and right, if the wicked restore the pledge, give again that he had robbed, walk in the statutes of life without committing iniquity he shall surely live he shall not die none of his sins that he hath committed shall be mentioned unto him he hath done that which is lawful and right he shall surely live and again the question the question is is it relevant to believers that have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus well the first thing I would uh, ask to observe is that in verse number 2 this is a direct 
word to the children of Israel. He says, uh, Son of man, speak to the children of thy people. And of course, Ezekiel's people would be the Jews. So that's the first thing I would make an observation. There's a direct uh, teaching that goes to Israel, uh, the people of Israel in the Old Testament dispensation of law. As far as the principle is concerned, the overriding principle seems to me uh, that uh, judgment in terms of earthly judgment um, will fall upon a person who commits sin, whether or not that person is a righteous person or an unrighteous person. That's the point that's being made in this particular passage. This has nothing to do with the New Testament teaching that we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You, you know that from verse 13. When I say to the righteous that he shall surely die, if he trusts in his own righteousness. So this is a person who is uh, trusting in his own uh, righteousness in the sense that uh, righteousness in the Bible has to do with obedience to the law. So this is one who is following the law, being obedient to the law, and believe that he's righteous before God because he's keeping the law. Uh, that is not the same as the, Paul talks about. There's a righteousness which comes by the law, but it's a righteousness which comes by faith in Jesus Christ. So two different righteousness we're talking about. Ezekiel is talking about uh, personal life of righteousness. He's not talking about the uh, eternal righteousness that we talked about in the New Testament. And the key point here is this. Here is a person who claims to be righteous, but they have abandoned their right life, and they're now living a life of iniquity and sin. And because they've been righteous in the past, they're now believing that uh, what they're doing, even though it's evil, that somehow it uh, protects them from any kind of penalty or God dealing with them in the present. So they're almost cocky in their attitude towards their righteousness. The other person, of course, is a sinner uh, and a person who's living in sin, but he comes to the point where he repents and he turns away from his sin. So he has now become righteous before God in terms of personal righteousness. So um, the principle is this. What you sow, you're going to reap. That is a New Testament principle. Uh, even today, uh, a believer who is clothed in the righteousness of Christ, if that believer gets involved in sinful activity, he's not absolved from God disciplining him and dealing with him. So he can't hide behind even the fact that he's clothed in the righteousness of Christ. God wants us to walk in holiness. And if there's any departure from holiness, uh, God will discipline. That's the point that's being made. But the idea that because you lived a righteous life for a long time, and uh, a person who was unrighteous for so many years, now he repents, uh, somehow you feel that the amount of years that you live a righteous should compensate but uh, and, and uh, make it in such a way that God would not deal with you in a desirable way. But that is wrong thinking, because God always honors repentance, whether it be the sinner repenting or the saint repentant, repenting. And that's the key to what is being said here. So the whole idea is that uh, we must walk a righteous life, and we must not assume that because we walked righteously in, in years before, that in some way absolves us from the responsibility of continuing our walk, and we get involved in sinful activity, thinking that somehow we are specially protected because of the number of years we live righteously. There is a moral law, and that moral law governs even our lives today. Believers today uh, could be living a righteous life for many, many years, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, but if you get off into sin, God has to discipline you, so it doesn't absolve you from being disciplined. In the case of Ezekiel, of course, he's dealing here with the, uh, the captivity that is coming upon his people. 
and uh, the person is who's assuming that because they lived a righteous life many years before, now they're living in sin and in idolatry, they're assuming that this would uh, safeguard them from the invasion and they would be protect, protected. On the other hand, there were people who were living very wicked lives before. Now they have repented because they've heard the message of the prophet, and they now t- turn to righteousness. Uh, God is saying the one that is repentant and living in uh, now turning right, living in righteousness, that one will be protected. The one who formerly held to righteousness but now gone into iniquity, he'd be carried into captivity. So in a, in a sense, the principle being thought is is uh, what you sow is going to you're going to reap, and that is still relevant today for believers. That even though we have the righteousness of Christ, God still wants wants us to walk in a godly, um, holy way, and when we get away into iniquity and sin. We can expect divine chastening. We're not going to escape divine chastening because we were so good in the years before. So if some things have changed from the Old Testament times to the New Testament times, has the way of salvation changed? No, the way of salvation has, has always been the same. As a matter of fact, uh, as Paul would argue in Romans chapter 4, uh, he quotes um, Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed God and was counted in for righteousness. Uh, Paul, in that great argument in Romans chapter 4, shows you that the way of salvation has always been the same. It's believing in God, and uh, the righteousness of God is imputed to the person who believes. It has never been a work salvation. The mistake that the Jews have made, and many today are still making, they thought that by trying to keep the law, and develop their own personal righteousness that will get them acceptable before God. And uh, and, and uh, the, the New Testament teaches very clearly that even our righteousnesses is as filthy rags because many times, even though we might live a righteous life, our motive is wrong. And uh, so it is tarnished, even the best things that we do sometimes is tarnished with a false motive. But uh, the, the, the doctrine of salvation has never changed. And anyone that uh, thinks otherwise need to go and read Romans chapter 4, where Paul used the illustration of Abraham, used the illustration of David as well, uh, indicating that uh, forgiveness and pardon and righteousness does not come through the law, but it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in interactive program on the Radio Lighthouse. If you want to call and ask your question live on the air, you can call 1-268-462-7420. It can be any topic about life. It can be about why the Bible says something, why it doesn't say something. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 1-268-782-1454. If you want your question to remain anonymous, just at the beginning of it, put anonymous. Uh, Otherwise, we may use the area code to determine uh, what part of the Caribbean or what island the question is coming from. But if you put anonymous, we will keep it completely generic and not even mention what hemisphere the question is coming from. You can also send in your question on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and then right there on your device, you can comment in the comment section, and it'll get passed along. Now to the question that I was starting out the program with inadvertently. Uh, Thank you to the individuals who sent in these questions, by the way. Good night, Pastor Murphy. I would like you to explain Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38. And I believe the material here is going to take a decent amount of time to get through it. But any introduction to this material before we jump into it, Pastor? I I was so thankful for the person uh, sending this question because this is an issue I wanted to deal with. 
uh, with for some time, especially since you see what's happening in the Middle East between Russia and Iran and uh, the other Arab countries. So I, I wanted to deal with it, but every thing in its time, and this particular prophecy that's referred to in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 30 and 39, uh, dealing with Gog and Magog and her allies, uh, has to do with a coalition of nations that will come against Israel uh, in the latter days, and they will invade Israel, but will be miraculously destroyed. Uh, it will take uh, seven years to take all the military equipment that's destroyed, and it will take seven months to bury all the bodies that are, are going to be uh, totally uh, obliterated in, in this warfare. And this warfare will be won not by great military means, it will be won through the supernatural intervention of God, using the elements of nature to utterly obliterate and destroy the armies that are coming from the north. The coalition, uh, Nathan, might be called a Russian-Afro-Arabic alliance because it will be made up of Russia, um, Arabic countries, and also Arabic countries within Africa like Sudan and Libya. So you might call it the Russian-Afro-Arabic alliance that's going to come against Israel in the latter days. Or you might call it the Russian-Islamic um, coalition of nations coming from the north to, to attack Israel. This is what this prophecy is all about in Ezekiel chapter 30 and chapter 39. Now, you'll probably touch on this, but the question just came to my mind. There are those who would say that the church replaces Israel, has replaced Israel in God's plan. Well, that's the biggest myth and the biggest uh, um, hindrance to understand Bible prophecy. Uh, the Bible is very, very clear. There are three entities there's the Gentiles, there's the Jew, and there is the church. These are the three continuing entities. So Israel still has a role in the prophetic calendar. Uh, if you leave Israel out of the picture in terms of prophecy, you have total confusion. Uh, and I, I, I mentioned in a previous program that there are many, <coughs> many churches uh, today, uh, de de denominations that does not acknowledge Israel as having any prominent role to play in the end times. They believe that when uh, Israel uh, was responsible for the crucifixion of Christ, that God completely uh, uh, abandoned Israel and uh, left Israel in apostasy, and his program was, was Israel's totally completed, and therefore there's no role for Israel in the future. Uh, the Catholic Church believes that. They don't have Israel in their eschatology. The Seventh-day Adventists believe that. They don't have Israel in their eschatology. The Jehovah's Witness believe that as well. The Mormons believe that as well. Uh, and there are some others. I think even the uh, the those that hold to the reform uh, form of theology, uh, even in their eschatology, there's no room for Israel. All that God promised to Israel has now uh, believed to be taken over into the church. So, and that's why you have this problem about the prophecy. Uh, is there millennium? Is there post-millennium, amillennium, pre-millennial? All of this confusion has come about because they don't acknowledge that God has any place for Israel. The simple answer to that question, Nathan, is found in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Romans chapter 9 explains Israel's past. Uh, Romans chapter 10 explains Israel's present in blindness and darkness because of their unbelief. Romans chapter 11 talks about God regrafting Israel into his whole program and that the nation, all Israel is going to be saved at some point in time. So those who hold to that position have great difficulty trying to fit Romans 9, 10 
and 11 into their theology. But uh, it is very, very clear that um, from, from my perspective and most evangelicals, that Israel has a prominent role to play uh, in terms of the future as God's prophetic program. And by the way, this dovetails into Daniel chapter <coughs> chapter 9, verse 25 to 27, that deals with the 70th week, where we're told that there are 70 weeks or 77, yeah. 490 years. And we're told that uh, the Messiah is going to be cut off. And then there's a hiatus between the 69th week and the 70th week, a break between there. But it's, it's coming a time when the Antichrist is going to sign a peace track with Israel uh, contract with Israel for seven years, and in the midst of that um, contract or covenant, he breaks it, and that's where you get the tribulation period. This dovetails into Revelation that talks about uh, 12, 60 days and 42 months, three and a half years in one section, three and a half years, 70, uh, seven years, seven years that the Bible talks about. So, Revelation is an explication of the 70th week of Daniel. Now that, that, that is where Bible prophecy synchronizes. Take Israel out of the picture and you have utter confusion where you have to believe in allegorizing the Bible, uh, symbols, and so on and so forth. And that leaves the interpretation up to the individual because that's a subjective interpretation. If you hold to the historical grammatical interpretation that the Bible is literal and that Israel has a place, then you can see how the Bible systematically deals with these matters. So um, those that make that claim, whether they like it or not, they can never understand a lot of the prophecies in the Old Testament. They have to allegorize those as though they're fulfilling the church. So but this passage of Ezekiel 38 and 39, do you know, would they allegorize it? Or how would they view this passage if they were to say Well, there's some that uh, view this passage, for example, as um, occurring during the Maccabean period. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, there's some that say as well <clears throat> when the uh, Chaldeans were overthrown, that it also related to that. And then there's some that say that uh, it had to do with the when the Turks Empire was also destroyed because Turkey is mentioned here, Tagoro. Uh, they said that it refers to that. So they 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 have a historical view. Okay. And they would try to find events in the past that was seen to fit into this. But again, there's never been a coalition like this where you have uh, Persia, which is Iran. We'll talk about that later. You've got Russia. You've got Libya. You've got Sudan. You'd never had that kind of a coalition in any kind of historical event that occurred in the, in the, in the past. So we know that this is yet futuristic. Besides that, there, there are factors in Ezekiel, uh, this chapter, that gives you an indication of the historical time it will occur vis-a-vis -vis that it is an event that's already occurred in, in the past. So your view, using Scripture to interpret itself, is that this is a futuristic... Yeah, I, there's no question about this. is a futuristic, and I don't see... And by the way, after you read Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, you go into the new temple, which has to do with the millennial period of time when the temple is going to be rebuilt. And the Bible talks about that during the um, during, uh, second... Uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 Israel is going to rebuild the temple and uh, the Antichrist is going to set up his uh, position there that he is God. Paul talks about that in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 uh, so the, we know the temple is going to be rebuilt and, and those who know anything about what's going on in Israel we know they already have uh, a temple group that are trying to make they've already made the paraphernalia like the cups and the chalices and stuff like that one of the things that they were trying to get is what they call the red heifer 
to get to try how to breed to get a red heifer but and also the materials uh, have already been laid aside to re- rebuild that basically the problem is of course is that the mosque uh, of the Muslims uh, sit right now where the temple generally is but it is believed that uh, the temple um, there's space enough for the temples to be rebuilt there. I suspect that sometime in the future, Nathan, I've said this uh, in a previous broadcast, I think that uh, rather than Israel being the one to destroy the mosque, it will create a great war between the the uh, the um, Islamists and Israel. I do believe that something is going to happen. Uh, remember when the Scud missiles at one time was being shot into Israel right. way back? I really thought, honestly, I, I was I was so optimistic that one of those Scud missiles would have gone off course and destroyed the, the mosque and that would allow Israel to build the temple. I think something of that is very possible because with all of this sh- throwing bombs into Israel and, and that kind of thing, yeah. one of those can veer off. You can't blame Israel for that. Uh, you get what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think the how it's going to happen, the logistics of it and the mechanics of it, I just don't know how it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen because God says it's going to happen, but uh, Ezekiel 38 clearly and 39 goes right into that, and we know that that's not referring to the temple that was there before, because the measurements that are given in uh, Ezekiel chapter 40 do not compare with the measurements that are given in the uh, for the, in the book of Leviticus, etc., or even for the temple that was built in the first century. So we know that there's no coordination there whatsoever. So that temple has, because there's specifics about the measurements, the size, what had to be done, etc., etc. So that is yet futuristic as well. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The name of the program is That's Truth. It is 7.53 across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening. If you are listening on a Saturday afternoon rebroadcast, we are glad that you're listening. If you have a question and you're not able to listen on Tuesday, but you're joining us on Saturday, go ahead and still send in your question via WhatsApp or text message, and we will deal with it the following Tuesday. WhatsApp or text your question to 268 782-1454. If you'd like to call and be put live on the air here on Tuesday evening, please call 268-462-7420. The phone line is open, available, and awaiting your call. Call 268-462-7420. What is the basis that you have for believing that these chapters refer to yet futuristic events, Pastor? Well, I think when you look at Ezekiel, there are three historical landmarks that let you have an idea that this is not a past event, as the historicists would take the position. Um, uh, let, me, let, me, let me point out, for example, look at Ezekiel 38, verse 8 and verse 16. 38.8 says, After many days thou shalt be visited... In the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste. But that's, it, that's verse 8? 38, 8. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, but it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. And then look at verse 16. Verse 16 says... And thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud over the cover, cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days, and I will bring thee against my land, that the heathen may know me 
when I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, before their eyes. Yeah, you notice that twice in Ezekiel 38.8 and Ezekiel 38.16, that these events that will occur in Ezekiel 30 and 39 are designated to take place in the latter days. Anyone with any theological knowledge would know that the latter days is a distinctive eschological term that refers to the end times. So it has to take place in the end times. Okay, um, that is a teaching, and, and and that's one of the historical landmarks to let you know that this is yet futuristic. This has nothing to do with something that took place in the past. The other thing that um, I think is important is again, if you go back to Ezekiel thirty-eight and verse eight, notice another significant historical landmark that's mentioned there in verse eight. Read it again, please. Thirty-eight eight says, "After many days thou shalt be visited; in the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back." From the sword, and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste. Now, notice three, three, three things there. They're coming against the people being brought back. They're coming out from many nations, and the last part you just read there is what? Which have always been waste, and there's more to the verse. Go, go ahead. But it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. And then read verse eleven and twelve of the same chapter. And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. Verse 12, to take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn thine hand against the desolate places that are now inhabited. And upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. So the second historical landmark there is not only that it will take place in the latter days, but when this invasion occurs, Israel would have been restored to their land. Remember that. There was no Israel until 1948. For 2,000 years, uh, uh, Israel as it were, uh, after the destruction of 70 AD, didn't exist as a nation. It was only returned to a nation in 1948. Uh, uh, so so this prophecy has to come back after Israel is in the land. In the latter days, after Israel is in, in the land, Israel only returned to the land in 1948. So it cannot be an event that occurred uh, previously. Uh, the third thing that is important, uh, Nathan, uh, in this particular passage is that if you look at... Uh, Read verse 17 of Ezekiel, thirty-eight, seventeen. Thus saith the Lord God, Art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee against them? And then read 38, 39, verse 8. Uh, 39, 8. Chapter 39, verse, yeah, verse 8. Chapter 39, verse 8 says, Behold, it is come, and it is done, saith the Lord God. This is the day whereof I have spoken. So that's a third landmark, a historical landmark. Number one is the fact that it will occur in the latter days. Number two, it will occur when Israel is restored to the land of Palestine. And number three, this prophecy has been mentioned in previous prophetic writings. So we should be able to find in the prophetic writings of the prophets reference to a coming invasion of nations against Israel. And that's precisely what we find uh, in other Old Testament passages. For example, 
in uh, Isaiah chapter uh, 29, verse 1 to 8. Um, I'm not going to let you read that one. I'll give you some other ones, but I'll just get to it. Then uh, Joel chapter 2. Look at Joel chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. It says, But I will remove far off from you the northern army and will drive him into a land barren and desolate with his face toward the east sea and his hinder parts toward the utmost sea and his stink shall come up and his ill savor shall come up because he hath done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice for the Lord will do great things. Again, if when we get to Ephesians chapter 39, 38, 39, you discover that the armies of the northern army is destroyed. The land is so stink with the, with the mm-hmm. amount of bodies. It takes seven months to bury all the bodies so that they become a carrion for the vultures and the uh, other uh, predators. Uh, so again, clearly, this is another army that's going to be destroyed. And uh, the Lord talked about the stench that will come from the bodies that are rotting as a result of the destruction. And he had said there in Ezekiel before that I spoke to this matter through the prophets before. So it's not just Ezekiel, but it's significant that Joel mentions the northern army and the idea of the stench that would require uh, Israel to deal with it. And when we come into ch- chapter 39, you'll find exactly why Joel makes sense about the stench because, as I said, it takes seven months to bury all these bodies. And then yeah, another important prophecy might be, um, look at Zechariah uh, chapter 12, uh, maybe read verse, um, chapter 14, look at verse 2 and 4, 2 to 4. <clears throat> Zechariah fourteen two to 4 yeah. says, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half the city shall go forth into captivity, and the res- residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in, the, in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley and half the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Yeah, again, you talk about people coming, nations coming against Israel, uh, Jerusalem, and God Himself supernaturally intervening. And Ezekiel chapter thirty-nine uh, also talks about supernatural intervention to save the nation of Israel. So I think that these four landmarks, uh, historical landmarks, um, completely obliterate any suggestion that this has been a historical event that occurred. Uh, in the past, when in actual fact, these three significant landmarks let us know that it is its future, latter days, nation of Israel returns to Palestine, and the fact that the prophet spoke to this same issue other than just Ezekiel. I think those are three clear indicators that we're dealing with something that's yet futuristic and not something that's historically past. And you can go on Google Earth and you can zoom in on the Mount of Olives and you can see that there is not a valley running east-west through the middle of the Mount of Olives that is still futuristic. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse broadcasting from the island of Antigua, 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at radiolighthouse.org. If you have a question, you can call and ask it live on the air by calling 268-462-7420. 
You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454, or you can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and then right there on your device, you can comment your questions and they'll be passed along to Pastor Murphy live on the air in a timely manner. Pastor, what nations will form part of this military invasion of Israel, and what are the modern identities or counterparts that we can connect to our globe or our map today in relation to what's mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39? Well, I think if you look at uh, verse 2 to the verse number 6, you have a, a, a mention of those uh, nations that are going to be involved. So if you if you just read that, please, I think it would help. Um, read verse number two first. Okay. Verse two says, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. That's verse two. You want me to continue? Yeah. Verse three says, And say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth, and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his bands, the house of Tagarma of the north quarters and all his bands and all the people with thee. Now if you take the uh, names that are mentioned there, let's just go through those names for example. The first one you got in verse number two is Gog. Uh, the problem with Gog uh, is if you try to get an etymology of this word or you try to check a Bible dictionary uh, or you try a lexicon uh, the difficulty is that there's an uncertain derivation of where this word Gog came from Uh, what we do know that uh, Gog is the leader of this confederacy he's from the land of Magog but he's the leader of the confederacy one of the things that is very very helpful uh, in terms of uh, trying to identify this particular name Gog is that uh, the Caucasus uh, mountains in southern Russia the word there uh, Caucasus really means fort of Gog Hmm. so if you're looking for some kind of a um, derivation or something would help you to have an idea where this land would be it is very significant that that word means um, fort of Gog uh, so I would uh, that would help you to understand we're dealing here with some part of Russia okay that's the first thing we'd like to say the word Gog uh, really is a word like Pharaoh or Kaiser or Caesar it's more of a, a term um, that is, is being used here. Gog is like the, the leader uh, it's like a t- like Caesar is like uh, the Kaiser in, in Germany etc etc so but again the the hint of where this is is the fact that the Caucasus mountains there uh, really means fort or uh, of, of Gog. So I think that it's very helpful. The, the other thing is Magog. Uh, there is information uh, that's provided in, 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 uh, from historians 
that helped to identify Magog. Uh, Magog, according to Flavius Josephus, refers to the Scythians, a fierce warlike tribe of horsemen that roamed the steppes in southern Russia. So again, it is linked to Russia once again in terms of understanding the area of the territory. Um, during the Second World War, um, because of the shortages in England, they received 50,000 pencils from Russia with the imprint Gog and Magog on it coming from Russia. So that is not something, I'm not too sure what is the significance of that, but clearly the, the, um, the hint being there that we're dealing with a leader coming out of Russia, Magog, Russia. The word uh, chief that you had there in that verse, uh, verse number two, was it chief? Yes, chief prince yeah. of... Again, that is um, that is not a adjective. It was an adjective. It would have had, a, according to the language, the Hebrew language, it would have had a definite article. That word is a proper word, uh, uh, and the word it should be rosh, R-O-S-H. So rather than chief, it should be rosh. And uh, Jesenius, in his Hebrew uh, lexicon, says that, and he wrote this lexicon in the 19th century, uh, he's a, a, an expert in the Hebrew language, he defined Rosh as Russia, he called in his book, he called in his uh, lexicon, he says Rosh is Russia. The other thing is that the Greek and the Byzantine um, um, Orthodox Church, um, and also geographers from that part of the world, um, take the guy Proshus, uh, in 434 to 447, that's when he lived, uh, he referred to um, Ezekiel 38, Rosh, as Russia. And that was going, he, he lived in 434 to 447, and he was an Orthodox um, Greek, like what you call the Orthodox Church today. Mm -hmm. They sent him as a missionary, and that's how he described Ezekiel 38, referring to, to Russia. And then... Uh, in 855 again, uh, in his uh, sermons, uh, Zacchaeus, which is another one, another Russian Orthodox, was sent to that party world, also mentioned that Rush is Russia. Uh, and that is, again, it is very, 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 very significant. There are also documents from 1867, Greek documents, uh, where the church sent missions north to Rush again to Russia because that's how it's described in the in the Greek documents of the Orthodox Church sending missionaries to that part of the world. Uh, and, and so it, it seems very clear from the Josephus, from these Orthodox Greek, Greek uh, preachers that were sent to do missionary work in that part of the world that they've all identified uh, Rosh uh, what you got the word prince there is unfortunately translated that way but if you check some of the modern versions they remain the word rush that's referring to Russia and then there's one other uh, thing that's worth mentioning uh, Eben Forslan a geographer from Arabia uh, pinpointed rush as the Russian people so it's not just the Orthodox Church that identified rush as the Russian people but also you've got um, an Arabian ge geographer who also identified rush as, as Russia. So it, it, it seems to be um, a, f a reality that we're dealing here with uh, Russia and uh, its leader Gog forming an alliance with the 
Eastern Bloc nations, which we'll come to deal with next, and also some of the African countries as well, that this coalition, they're going to come and join in an army that will come to try to invade Israel in the latter days. Then the other one that is mentioned is uh, Meshach. Um, that word has been the etymologists uh, etymo uh, who do study of uh, languages. They have said that that word uh, Meshach has changed from Meshach to Moshosh to Moscori and now to Moscow. So Moscow is derived from that word uh, Meshesh. Again, Moscow as we know is the northern capital of uh, Russia. So they associate that linguistically, that word Meshach is linked with Moscow. Uh, those who do linguistics and so on and so forth. Uh, have any. And then Tubal uh, is, is mentioned. And again, they say that, uh, the scholars say that Tubal is Tobolis, which is the eastern capital of Russia. Uh, so those seem to be some identifying marks. The other thing is, uh, Nathan, if you look at Ezekiel 38.6. Okay. Could you read that? Gomer and all his bands, the house of Togarma of the North Quarters, and all his bands, and many people with the... Okay, uh, read verse 15. Verse 15 says... And thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. And then 39, verse 15, which is the same, deal with the same thing. 39, verse 15. 15 says, And the passengers that pass through the land, when any seeth a man's bone, then shall he set up a sign by it, till the buriers have buried it in the valley of Hamangog. Okay. Uh, the point I'm making here, is, you see in verse 15 of chapter 38, it comes from the northern parts. In the uh, language, it is the uttermost part to the north. Hmm. Right? If you took a line from Israel and went directly to the uttermost mark, it goes right through, uh, right through to Russia. So that's another identifying mark. It comes to the other. And remember that all directions in the Bible are from Israel. Whether, it be if you, for example, Eden was in the east, it's always east of where Palestine is. That's how we know that Eden was not in Africa. The ridiculous claim that it was in Africa is so it's not worth mentioning, right? Because that, you know, there's a there's a nationalistic movement that is trying to make everything African, which is ridiculous to be very honest. But every direction in the Bible is always given in relation to Palestine, Israel. So when it comes to the uttermost part of the north, if you were to take a line and use a globe and draw a line from Israel, go right up to the uttermost part, you go right to Moscow, right to Russia. So that's another identifying mark that we hear dealing with a northern invasion where uh, Gog is going to lead this, this confederacy. But the, 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 the leader is, is, is Rosh from Russia. Okay, So this is uh, the, the teaching in, in regards to, to this matter. So those are the those are the identifying marks of the leaders who are going to do it. Now, no, go back to chapter uh, 38 and look at verse number 5. And have, ha, here you have the coalition. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them. Okay. Now, Persia, uh, in 1952, uh, Iran was called Persia, the country of Persia. It was changed from... Uh, 
Persia to Iran in 1952. So we know exactly where Persia is. So that is one of the allies is going to be Iran. It's going to be one of the allies of this Russian coalition. And then the other one that is mentioned, Ethiopia. Uh, Ethiopia is where Sudan is today, is where Ethiopia used to be. So we're dealing here with uh, Sudan. And remember, and then the other country is mentioned as what? Put. Uh, verse, verse number five. Verse number five, Ethiopia and Libya. Right. Well, the, the word is put in the in the Hebrew language. Okay. So it's it's Libya. So you've got you've got Russia, you've got Iran, you've got Sudan, you've got uh, Libya, and then the other one is verse number six, Gomer, and all his bands. Yeah. Now Gomer is mentioned in in Genesis chapter ten, verse two, as one of the son of Japheth, who went. Uh, into the European part of the world, uh, the, 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 most scholars believe that Gomer is linked with Germany. Okay, interesting. Uh, yeah, they used to. Well, before Germany was joined to West Germany was joined back to East Germany, they always felt that one of the allies of Russia would have been East Germany, mm-hmm. right? But that is what they generally uh, see Gomer as Germany, and then the House of Togoma is Turkey. That's where Turkey is today. And then it said, many people, in verse number 6, uh, a vast military confederacy is mentioned in verse number 6. So if you take the, if you take the, the, the um, names that are mentioned here already, uh, you've got Gog uh, leading, Gog being the leader or the Tsar or the Kaiser of Russia, the leader of Russia, leading a, a, a Russian army, joined with Iran, joined with Sudan, joined with Libya, uh, joined with Turkey, and joined with Gomer. Uh, today, if you look at the geopolitical map of where the alliances are today, uh, it is very clear that Russia is in bed with Iran. We all know that. Okay, The significant thing that these other uh, nations that I mentioned, like Sudan, Libya, uh, and, and Iran, they're all what kind of countries? Islamic countries. So this is an Islamic alliance with Russia coming against Israel. Who hates Israel more than any other uh, nations on the earth? Muslim the Muslims. The So, I, I, and what happens today, this is where it, it is so, to my mind, everything seems to be converging uh, for this to become a final event uh, in the latter days. Because it is very significant that uh, America doesn't want Iran to have a nuclear bomb. Who does she have negotiating with Iran not to have a bomb. He has Russia, even though she's against Russia's invasion of Ukraine, yet Russia is the main player trying to negotiate between the Americans and Iran vis-a-vis the the uh, the um, nuclear issue. Uh, so it, it's it's it's. I mean, you can't help but but see that this is a very real possibility, and the geopolitical alliance is clearly there. Uh, Iran would have a link with those Arab countries, uh, Libya and also uh, Sudan. And uh, one can see that this coalition is not something that's far-fetched. We're already seeing the formation of this coalition, even as we live today. The question is, will it happen in our lifetime? Uh, But the only thing that caused a little bit concern has to do with Gomer. Uh, What happens with Germany in the future? Uh, 
And by the way, remember that uh, because of what's going on in Ukraine and Germany taking a position, Russia has cut off Germany's gas. Germany is in a dilemma now, a tremendous dilemma. Is Russia going to be able to use that uh, economic stake to bring Germany in, uh, into her fold? That's the reality as well. Uh, don't ever forget that this could happen. So we are, we are living in times when we have to read the Bible and look at the newspapers, listen to the news to see exactly how this configuration is, is going. We already see Russia, Iran, Sudan, Libya. We don't have a problem with that. Big question is that this Gomer, is it going to be part of Germany, all of Germany? What What is this going to happen? And how is this going Is the, uh, the EEC, uh, European Economic, is that going to split at some point in time because of the power that Russia has in terms of the, the uh, power it has in terms of um, fuel? Fuel. fuel. Uh, and, and you know, and, you know, th- this is where Nathan, I must say, I'm totally confused about Americans' policies. You have more liquid oil than any other nation on planet Earth, yet you shut down all, that, which gives you leverage. You need leverage in this world. The the Chinese have leverage because they have the cash, right? America has leverage because she has the the gold, the, the black gold, as it were, the, the wealth of, of... She has more oil than Arabia or any other country in the world. But rather than use it for her benefit to pay off the $31 trillion in debt she has, uh, you have an administration that shut down all... And yet, even though you produce the purest form of oil in the world and the least in terms of gas emission that will cause climate thing. You are now depending on the worst countries that produce oil, uh, Venezuela, uh, Saudi Arabia, Russia. So you are actually creating more pollution by cutting off your supply. So it doesn't make sense to me. I'm trying to figure out what in the world is going on. And I think what is happening to the American country, and I don't want to say this because you're an American, I do think that in a sense, because they've been exposed to so much truth, and the politician has gone so far away from God, I believe that those people are judicially blinded, that they can't even see. They think they're doing the right thing, but they can't see. And I think this is what is happening to you. I can't explain what is happening to your country other than the fact that they seem to be judicially blinded and can't see uh, what the average guy can see makes sense. In other words, common sense seems to have been lost in this whole exercise, and it puzzles me greatly what is going on, and I'm trying to make heads and tails of it, and I just can't make heads and tails of it, quite frankly. We have a question that's come in from a listener. Pastor, why was Solomon and Abraham and other men that God used in the Old Testament allowed to have more than one wife? Well, look, we know this. God's plan, you must always go back to what is God's original intent. And we know from the very creation story that God intended one man and one woman, that they be joined together and become one flesh, the two become one flesh. This is God's original plan, okay? Uh, remember that Abraham and all of those people did not have a Bible. That's the thing you've got to remember. They didn't have a Bible. Moses didn't have a Bible as well. Uh, uh, so you've got to understand that the Bible was only completed in the Old Testament in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, okay? They did not have all the truth. The other thing is this. God had to deal with man at the stage man is, okay? Man's development. God has to deal with that. Man is a moral, responsible being, and God reveals certain truth to man uh, progressively. Um, 
it should have been clear to people like David for sure that um, this kind of polygamy was wrong and was evil. God tolerated a lot of things under the Old Testament economy because you didn't have the fullness of revelation and fullness of light. So there's a mystery there as to why God tolerated that. But we do know one thing was never God's plan and still is never God's plan that you would have polygamy. Um, You find that uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 again reasserts a man and a woman become two. Uh, That is what marriage is all about. But during that period, uh, God allowed, and again, most of these people without a Bible, Abraham and those didn't have a Bible. Remember that uh, the Bible, Moses wrote the five books of the Bible. Look how far Moses came after Abraham. But they had a little bit of revelation. This was oral revelation. It was passed on and passed on and passed on and passed on. Uh, And these people allow the social system, the culture around them, to shape them rather than they shape the culture. They allow the culture to shape them. So because this was being practiced in that part of the world, uh, they got involved in the practices of their culture. Same thing is happening today, by the way. Uh, We have today a a Bible that is complete, but you've got people in, uh, and I, I tell you this, you've got people today claiming that they're Christians, yet they claim to be homosexuals, they claim to be lesbians, they claim to be transgender. I'll say to you this, there's no such thing as a saved uh, homosexual or saved lesbian or saved transgender. Those people are not saved. Practicing. Practicing, yeah. Those people are not saved people. Those people know exactly what is right, and they're willfully, willfully uh, pursuing a direction that God abominates and God condemns. And there's no person on planet Earth that can convince me that any of those people are authentically saved. They have not changed in their life. They have not repented. They don't even see that their sin needs to be repented of, where that's a very sin that God condemns again and that God abominates. So how are you going to be saved if you didn't repent? What about a practicing liar or a practicing thief? Well, same thing for, okay. for those type of people. The same thing. If a, a person who is saved has to change. Yeah. If a person was a, a practicing liar before he was saved, that has to change. Now, by the way, I would like to say this. It doesn't mean that sometimes there's an immediate uh, thing. There are some people who have weaknesses, like people who, some people who got, drink and people who are smoking. Sometimes it takes a while before those people gain the victory over the smoking or over the drinking. Same thing with some of these people who claim to be homosexuals. Mm -hmm. But a person who is living a life where he believes that that God has called him to live that kind of a lifestyle, he was born that kind of way, that person does not even know a single thing about the gospel. Uh, He doesn't understand what Paul says in Corinthians chapter 6, and such were some of you, but you were cleansed, but you were healed, but you were redeemed, but you were washed. Uh, But again, there are Christians who allow their culture to influence the way that they live. And I think that uh, in, in the case of Abraham and those type of people. But again, I, I like to say this. People are looking for a loophole to accommodate polygamy today. I've, I, I'm amazed how many people are trying to look for that loophole. The loophole is not there because we have the fullness of revelation. We know God's original intent in the book of Genesis. We know Christ have uh, uh, vindicated God's original intent attested to it why would we then therefore try to find an alternative when you've got Christ and you've got the clear understanding of what God's original intent if God had intended for a man to have more than one wife he would have created more than one wife for Adam God's intent and by the way that completely destroys the whole symbolism of marriage to represent the church 
right? Uh, you're married to Christ, one commitment to Christ. That's how it's supposed to be. Not married to Christ and married to Baal and married to uh, some other pagan god. You're committed exclusively to him. That's what marriage is supposed to be, an exclusive relation between two persons. That is what God intended in Genesis, and that's what Christ endorsed in Matthew chapter 19, and what Paul stipulates when it comes to what a pastor should be in the book of Second Timothy. Thank you for the individual who sent in that question. I trust that that answer from Scripture is helpful to you. Another question that has come in, since God knows everything, did God know that Satan was going to do evil, and why did he allow the angels to follow Satan? God knows everything. There's no no question about that. The, the mystery is why does he allow and uh, permit things? My only explanation for that is that when God um, creates, he creates people uh, uh beings that had a moral choice. Uh, God is not creating automatons. He wants people to obey him and love him of their own free will. And it seems very, very clear that uh, free will was uh, allowed and uh, choices were made and choices have consequences. Now, I do believe that in the end time, it will be down to God's glory. Uh, the way he deals with this whole sin question, uh, it will be down to his his mercy and his grace will be on on, on display, uh, and I think that's what's going to happen. That he's going to display his grace in redeeming those who have willfully gone against his will, and uh, he's brought his son into the world to redeem us, and now he gives us a choice to make that choice. But there's still an element of mystery in all of that. So I'm not pretending to have an answer. Uh, a definitive answer to, to, to totally satisfy your curiosity or you know your desire to, to know um, it, with some kind of finality but um, I just am limited to what the Bible reveals and I do believe that the choice was given and the choice was made and choices have consequences and, and I do believe that in the long term uh, all that has taken place we will see the greater good that will be accomplished uh, where we who are human beings are given a divine nature like the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, I think that that is going to be part of the uh, the the display of grace that can take wretched, sinful people, transform them, and then change them into the image of his Son, and uh, they become like him. I think this is going to be the glory uh, that will be displayed in all eternity. But I don't have a final answer as to why he allowed this and why he allowed that. My my response to you would be Deuteronomy. Uh, the secret things uh, belong to the Lord, but those things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. There are some things that God has not revealed. Uh, what he has revealed is what we can um, live by and trust, etc., etc., and depend that at some point in future we will be given uh, answers. And by the way, there's so much in life that you and I don't know about. I just was reading a book the other day where they said these words, and I was shocked. Nobody has ever seen an electron. Hmm. I repeat, nobody has ever seen an electron, but the whole science of electronics is based on the electron. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you think about that, but, just, but because we have never seen it, we don't say it's not there, right? So there's a lot of mystery in life itself, and I, I think that um, there are some mysteries about God, and that is one of the great mysteries. But I do feel that... Uh, Ultimately, it will be down to man's greater glory uh, to allow and to permit the fall that, that happened. 
Do you have a question? We would love for you to call and ask it live on the air. You can call 268-462-7420. Again, the phone line is open, available, and awaiting your call, 268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. is the WhatsApp or text number. And you can join us on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed. And then right there on your device while you watch behind the scenes, listen to the program, you can comment in the comment section your question for Pastor Murphy. Pastor, anything else you want to mention in relation to any modern-day geopolitical alliances that mirror this prophecy in Ezekiel 38 and 39? I I don't have any additional factors. All I would say to those people who are listening and those who people who believe in the Bible and those people who are interested in Bible prophecy and even those who um, might be skeptical on this matter, I would say to you, keep an eye on what is going on in the Middle East what is happening in Russia, what is happening in the Middle East. And uh, read Ezekiel in light of what is currently happening and uh, see if there is not forming or shaping this coalition that the Bible talks about. Uh, The actors there, we know five of the actors is just one that we are still a little bit concerned about, whether this is going to be Germany is going to be part of these actors. The other thing is that it's possible that the coalition, the European coalition, is going to at some point break up at some point in time because there's tension there. France wants to be the leader because, you know, they've got a great history of Napoleon. The Germans, again, are the superpower in terms of military might there in in, uh, in Europe. And, of course, the Americans as well like to carry their weight. And at some point in time, you might have the Europeans responding. And with the, as American weakens, and that's what's happening, uh, the weakness of America. You see what happened in Afghanistan. No one that uh, saw what happened in Afghanistan uh, not only is shocked but disappointed that something like this could have happened to the world's most powerful nation. And the thing above of all that bothers people and bothers me, how can you leave over $800 billion in equipment, the, the most sophisticated uh, military equipment so that the Taliban ended up with an army greater than your ally, Australia. And I am told that the major um, traders in weapons today are the, are the people that are taking all the weapons, the Americans, are now selling them. I mean, you think about that for just a moment. This this is craziness, total, total craziness. Uh, and I think that uh, Europe saw America's weakness, and I think she is weakening herself and weakening herself. And I think um, e- economically, those who, you don't have to be an Einstein, you don't have to be an economic uh, genius with a PhD. You can't be $31 trillion in the debt and spending money as though it's, on, on, it's water and not eventually face some kind of economic collapse. So I think that she is weakening, and I think that will decrease. And as a result, I think Europe will play a lo- larger role as we move towards the end time. We have a caller on the line. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Good evening, Doctor. Hi, Mr. Williams. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing, I'm doing well. What can we do for you? Yes, uh, Doctor, I've uh, a question. Sure. Uh, let me tell you. If you and a neighbor having issues, or you're talking like the neighbor, if you are not calling you, you're not calling them, and you're a Christian, 
How could you approach a person to witness to them? How can you approach them? Yeah. Well, I, I will tell you what I would try to do. Uh, I think if that were the case, now, was there a relationship before? Yeah, okay, there was an ongoing relationship before, but something happened now, and now you're not talking, you're not speaking in terms, and maybe you're hearing a lot of negativity being echoed, maybe in the marketplace. Uh, if I were if I were th in that situation, I would try to have a meeting. I would uh, go to that person's home and say, you know what, um, we, we were such good friends before, uh, I, I, something must have happened between us and what I'm learning I'm not accusing you of anything but maybe maybe you've heard a few things I'm, I'm hearing some things that really is affecting my view of you and my relationship is there any way we can sit down and talk this thing over to find out where this problem is and how we can best solve this problem uh, I make no claim to be right I'm, if I'm wrong in anything I've done I'm prepared to acknowledge that and um, uh, let's see if we can hash out this thing so that we can restore some kind of relationship. Uh, I know that it might be strained for a little while after this, but let's see what we can do. That is what I would try to do. And, and so what did you believe of accept that? And Pardon me? So what did you believe of accept that? Well, the thing you've done, the thing you've done that you have actually uh, done your part. You can't make people uh, okay. accept your apology or accept whatever. You can't, you can't do that. You can't impose that on people. There are some people that hold things in. and they, I mean, <laughs> gosh, you, you'd be surprised uh, who, who could uh, hold things in for a very, very, very long time. And their whole personality uh, is so twisted that they are very unforgiving. Uh, that happens. But all you do in a case like that, you've done your part, uh, even if they don't speak to you, if when you walk, come out the, the, the house in the morning and they're in the front porch or something, hey, good morning, good morning. They may, they may not even look your way. They may not even say hi. You just keep doing your part, being kind, being thoughtful. Sooner or later, as uh, Peter tells us, uh, by showing kindness, uh, by giving water to the enemy and bread to the enemy, Peter said you build a, a, a fire of coals under the person. That means that you... Quite, quite, quite frankly, you um, cause such uneasiness within them that it kind of breaks them down after a period of time. Because if you're kind to me and I'm not being kind to you and you do that repeatedly, sooner or later, I must reach the point where I realize I'm the one in the wrong. This guy is really making a serious attempt to, to heal the relationship. And that would lead me eventually to come kind of reproachment where I say to you, you know what? I'm so sorry that I've been so harsh on you, whatever it is, whatever it is. But that's the way you, you show kindness. You just don't hold it against people. Just treat them as normal. And uh, that should, at some point in time, bring about some kind of healing. But that's it. Do your part. All you must be concerned about is that you do your part as a believer. What you believe is pleasing to the Lord. You you know, if, you, if you've got a problem with your brother, you're going to do whatever it is. And just, just, just that. That's what I would recommend. Okay, but uh, one more thing. Uh, is it right for a Christian to be telling a cow like beer and in like a business and selling them strong drinks there? Is it right? And and is it right for a Christian to be singing Calypso and saying that he is singing for the glory of God? Well, for me, uh, in my way of thinking, uh, alcoholic beverage 
especially the content of alcohol. But it's something that the, the, uh, I would not want to be part as a Christian. Uh, the effects of alcohol, I've seen it in my lifetime, in my own dad's life, who died very early because of alcohol. Uh, I have a sister who is uh, almost there right now with, with alcohol. And the main drug, alcohol is more dangerous even than marijuana, believe it or not. It causes more destruction even than marijuana. Uh, it's not something that you would want as a believer to be selling to somebody. If something is bad for me, it must be bad for somebody else. The problem today is that people allow money to be the, uh, the main motivating force in what they do. They see it as a source of income. Uh, they don't see themselves as stewards of what God has given to them. If I might use another illustration, not trying to get off on track. Uh, for example, there are people who have apartments, uh, Christians who have apartments. If I had an apartment and I'm a Christian, I would be very careful who I rent my apartment to. It cannot be that I'm just renting my apartment just to get an income. For example, I could not rent my apartment to two homosexuals who live in my, my apartment. How could I do that? Because I believe homosexuality is wrong. I could, not even, I could not even rent my apartment to two people living in sin. Why would I do that? Because that is wrong. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, Christianity affects your entire life. It affects your commercial life, your domestic life, your educational life, your political life. It must impact every year of your life. And uh, that is what I would say to you uh, in that regard. But certainly, uh, I would not um, want a believer, and I don't think a believer is right. Uh, Calypso, uh, I know it's a cultural thing. But again, the vulgarity of a lot of these calypsos is what bothers me more than anything else. Sometimes the words and the lyrics are, are fun poked at politicians and so on and so forth. But there's so much vulgarity in them sometimes. I wonder how the women don't protest. Mm. And it's always vulgarity that makes the women look as though they're cheap and dirty and they're available and what men could do to them and so on and so forth. And the women uh, do bad dancing to those kind of things. And I'm amazed, wait a minute, you're being insulted. You're being demeaned. And at the same time, you're enjoying this kind of thing. But again, uh, I wouldn't want to be singing Calypso in public. I would want to be singing songs to our Lord where people can identify me as a believer. Uh, look, you know, we're living in there where we have cultural Christians, and the position that ch strong churches take are not church position that other churches take. They've got a very low view of morality among uh, certain churches, and they can engage in activity, and there are no consequences. So a lot of times, all you can do, brother, is to give them the word, share the word with them, and uh, don't try to um, bully them into doing what is right. Because you can't coerce people into doing that. It has to be of the will and the choice. But you just live the life, give the counsel, and uh, do it in a, in, a, in a halfway decent way so that you know, you're not trying to publicly demean them. If you're going to tell a person something of that nature, don't tell them in public. Uh, meet them privately and, and I say to them, you know, I don't think that this is a proper thing for you as a Christian to do. If you do it in public, uh, they are going to be defensive and you're going to find they're going to hit back in a way, and then that, that could create some aggravation between you and the person and ill will in the person. Okay, thanks for the explanation. You're welcome, sir. God bless you, and thanks for calling. Thank you for your call, Brother Williams. Have a blessed rest of the night. 
Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 842 on this Tuesday evening. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you have a question, you can call and ask it live on the air. The phone line is open and available for you, 268-462-7420. Want to WhatsApp or text your question to us? Send it to the following number, 268-782-1454. A WhatsApp question that has just come in. Good evening, Pastor Murphy. What about people who lived before, like the tribal people, who were the Incas and the Aztecs and so on? What will become of them when Jesus returns? Were they exposed to the gospel in their time? Well, look, Paul explains this in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 1. It explains why people went into idolatry, why the heathen went into idolatry. Uh, It's a very clear um, explanation explanation. Uh, how how is God going to judge those people? And what Paul teaches in the book of Romans is that God has revealed himself to man in nature. It doesn't matter where that man is, whether he be in the Arctic, whether he be in Africa, uh, whether he be in Central America, whether he be in North America, it doesn't matter. God has revealed himself in creation. And Paul says there are uh, three things that you learn about God in creation. You learn his eternal power. So you learn that this is an eternal being, and this is an omnipotent being, because what is can only be done by an omnipotent being who has all power. Whatever you see uh, can only happen by a great supernatural omnipotent person. And Paul says it is, it is divinity, that this one is divine. This is not something that it's, it's something beyond man. So those are the three things you can learn about about, uh, about God from, from nature. The, I mean, the other things, for example, you can learn that he's intelligent, no question about that. He's a God of beauty, there's no question about that as well. He's a God of power, you, there's no question about that. Uh, a God of order, all of these are things that you can see from nature. So what when, when they knew God, that he was a creator, that he was eternal, that he was a supreme being, unlike anything that was created. That's the knowledge that all people have. They're born with that. They know there's a God. There's no question about that. God has pre-programmed you and me to know there's a God. But man wants uh, to create a God in his own image. And that's where, rather than serve the God... And by the way, a person who says, you know, God, I see from creation that you are eternal. I see from God uh, creation you are all-powerful. You are a divine being. You're not like a creature or a being. And you begin to worship that God. That's the light that God has given to you. That's you start worshiping that God. You don't start worshiping rocks and stones and animals and create human images. You start worshiping the God uh, that you, in nature, uh, that is there, all-powerful God. And then as you respond to that, with worship and thankfulness, God gives you more light and more light and more light and more light. All the heathen are without excuse who turn to idols and who turn to create statues of animals and planets and so on and so forth. They're inexcusable because God is pre-programmed to notice God and they can know that he's eternal. He's not a creature of time. They know he's all-powerful. They know that as well and that he is deity. And when you respond to that in worshiping God the right way as that way, then um, that's how God deals with you. 
So the heathen, the Incas, or the uh, whatever other group uh, that uh, belonged to the Caribbean, the, the Caribs, and so on and so forth, God would deal with them according to how have they responded to the God of nature. Okay, If they responded to the God of nature, he would have given more light and more light and more light. Uh, and that's how, that's how it is. If you search for God, you'll find God. He said that, search me with all your heart, you'll find me. The problem with the heathen is that they don't want to search for a God uh, according to the, the attributes of, of uh, the scriptures. What they want is a God of pleasure. They're more in the pursuit of what satisfies the flesh. And that is where uh, the sexual power within man has destroyed man in this whole thing. And they, rather than pursue God, they pursue pleasure. And that's why the Bible warns that in the latter days, uh, men will be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. We are back to neo-paganism. We might be sophisticated today, but we are really back to that type of world where people are not living to know the true and the living God. They have more light than the heathen, but in addition to that, all they're concerned with the pursuit of infinite pleasure and they're exhausting themselves in the process um, uh, because you will never be totally satisfied in life until you come to a right relationship with God. There's a void in your life that can never be filled with anything but God. And that's the way God made you. And I think every single human being is aware of that. Can you be saved, Pastor, with just general revelation? General revelation is enough to let you know there's a God. But there has to be special revelation, whether it be Abraham, where God comes down and speak to Abraham mm-hmm. and lead Abraham. And by the way, remember that when Joshua was recounting the history of Israel, going back to Abraham, he said these words, your fathers serve idols on the other side of the river. In other words, Abraham was a worship of a sun god. That's why you find that he moved from Ur to Chaldees and went to Haran. If you check any book on um, theology or any book on um, uh, any good commentary, they'll explain to you why he was moving in that direction and what gods were at Haran and what gods were at uh, Ur the Chaldees. Right? So he was a, a, a pagan. And God interrupted into Abraham's life and brought the true knowledge to Abraham so that through Abraham and his descendants, that knowledge would be dispersed to the uttermost part of the earth. So these were the human instruments to get the, get the message out. Now, of course, Israel failed. And God took us Gentiles, the church, and grafted us into his plan. God now asked the church to do the same thing the Jews were supposed to do. Get my message, show people how to live, give them the message. So there's a sense in which there's a divine element involved the sense of which a human element one. There's a divine human cooperation in this whole matter of redemption. And the same thing happened. Uh, so even though you might have general revelation, it only leads you so far. It doesn't tell you how to forgive your sins. That's where God intervenes and reveals uh, his ways. And God has revealed his ways of forgiveness and pardon to the Jewish nation in all their sacrificial system, showing us that you cannot come to God except there be some kind of a sacrifice made that would cover your sins. And uh, but God, that's how God works. But you need special revelation, not just general revelation. You need special revelation. For those of us that have heard the gospel, or we're in the Western world, uh, maybe we wouldn't consider ourselves pagan. But how do I know that I can be saved? How do what makes me a Christian? Again, I would say to people living in the Western culture, in the Western world, who have liberty and freedom and an open Bible. Uh, Go to the book of Romans, chapter 3 and 4, where Paul explains in extensive detail what it is 
to be justified before God, what it is to be a saved person. And fundamentally, what the Apostle Paul uh, points out there is that you're saved by putting your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. In other words, nobody is saved who does not believe that Jesus Christ died for their sins and Jesus Christ was resurrected. There's no saved person who does not believe in the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Nobody can be saved apart. So when you have people saying, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in the resurrection. I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that Christ died. For example, people say to you, but pastor, how can you condemn the entire Muslim world? It's not me that condemned the Muslim world. The Muslims said that Jesus Christ never died on the cross. Hmm. They said that Jesus Christ was never resurrected. So there's no gospel for the Muslim when he rejects the gospel, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I'm as a pastor can say to anybody, if you are a Muslim and does not believe in the resurrection of Christ and the death of Christ, you are as lost as the worst heathen on planet Earth. I don't care who Allah you serve. You must accept the gospel. See, So I would say to you, Nathan, it's a matter of repentance. Uh, we know the problem is sin. The problem between man and God is not ignorance. Every New Age religion, every modern religion tells you that man's problem is not that he's sinful. They don't even talk the word sin anymore. Man is ignorant. What is he ignorant about? He's ignorant of the fact that he has divinity in himself, that he's a little God that is developing. That is the essence of every single modern form of the New Age movement today. Okay, There's no matter of repentance. By the way, even in the uh, Muslim, you will never find the word repent in, 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 in the Quran. It's not there. Right? It's not there. Because they don't believe that man was born with a sinful nature either. They believe that the, the, the environment is what corrupts man, but not a sinful nature. Again, that is totally against the biblical doctrine of depravity. Uh, so to answer your question, we can know we're saved uh, if we turn away from our sin to repentance and we accept the provision that God has made for us to restore that relationship with Him, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You must put your faith and trust in Christ's work, not in my own righteousness. And it's not the church. You're not trusting the church to get you into heaven. I get the opinion when I meet people in Antigua, especially those who go to established churches, they don't want to discuss about Christ. They don't want to discuss anything because they belong to the church. And it seems to me that they're dependent because they have joined the church, that somehow the priest or the pope is going to get them into heaven because they belong to the church. <laughs> that is the greatest, the most craziest thing in the world. The church is to lead people and point people to Christ. It's not a substitute for Christ. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, a live call-in program. We have just a few minutes left in the program, but if you very quickly send in your question, we can still get to it. You can send a WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454, or you can call and be ask your question live on the air, 268-462-7420. But again, we are running low on time, so act quickly. Yeah, one other thing I would say, Nathan, along the same as we're discussing, you know, if you study the book of Revelation, uh, it talks about power centers, the the final phase of world history. What, where would the power centers would be? It's interesting that Russia is going to be the northern thing. Remember, there was no country called Russia a few years ago. What was it called? Soviet Union. Soviet Union. See, so, but it's very significant that that folded 
and now you go back to Russia, which is Russia. I mean, I, I don't know if people understand what is happening, but the geopolitical thing is it's happening, to be honest with you. So you've got Russia. You may know that you're going to have the Ten-Nation Confederacy coming out of Europe, where the Antichrist is going to come out of that Ten-Nation Confederacy. But it's also interesting that you're also talking about the King of the, the, king of the East. All of these must be on the stage of world history, competing forces. Now, we've never had this before. Right, you either had uh, a superpower like Babylon or Medo Persia rose the world, but you've never had four centers of power at the same time in human history. So you've got this, you've got that power today because the Eastern uh, nation that is talking about, in, in, and you really figure is the the army, only one army in the world that can provide that kind of an army. That is that is China. China. So you've got the already you've got on this world scene the Eastern power, which is China. You've got the Northern Power, and you've got the Eastern Power, you're already being formed. And uh, later on, even Egypt is going to be mentioned as part of the, 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 the invasion, etc. You've got Persia, which is Iran, and you've got this, this configuration. So I, that's why I say to people, read your Bible, study your Bible, read the newspapers, and keep abreast with the news what is going on in these major power centers of the world. So you will not be surprised when these things begin to happen very rapidly and speedily. But definitely, we can almost see the outline of the final phase that we're in. And uh, as we can say, come Lord Jesus, because we need to get this whole system wrapped up the way in which we're going currently. If we can see the proverbial writing on the wall, if we were Daniel, and... And one other thing just came yeah. to my mind very quickly. I don't want to interrupt you. Go back to your thought after this one. Our Lord also mentioned, not only dealing with the military power, the moral state that we'll be in in the end time. Remember what he said? As it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, even so it must be in the sun. So not only the military configuration we're seeing, but the moral state, he says. That's exactly where we are. Do you think in my lifetime, I would ever think we've come to the stage where people think it's okay for a man to marry a woman, a woman to marry a man, and that homosexual is normal and natural, and churches arguing the same thing, and then even beyond that, that a man can really believe he's a woman, and a woman can believe... (laughs) There is no way, but again, that gives you an idea of the moral tone that we are going to be living in. Our Lord said, these things are going to happen. So you've got this military configuration we're seeing, but along with that, you now have the marble setting that fits right into this dilemma. Go ahead and say what you're saying. So if we see the handwriting on the wall that the end times are near, what should it be motivating us to do? Well, our Lord said, every man that have this hope purifies himself. Number one, we should be in the concern about our own personal holiness, getting to know God and trying to be more of a, a sanctified believer. That would be the first. The other thing, the other thing that, that we must be uh, motivated to rescue as many as can be salvaged. So we should also have at least some measure of evangelistic zeal to reach those who are outside. And I would say this, Nathan, the older I get, and I know that my time is limited, uh, I'm now in my late 60s, especially I would say to you that the concern should should turn to our, our, our family. 
uh, if we got unsaved relatives, brothers, sisters, aunties, uncles, people we really love, uh, even school friends we went to uh, for years that were our best friends, and we've lo- allowed life to go by so quickly. We are now in our final, at least I'm in my final stage. Those are things I, I, I feel that uh, we should at least get some kind of focus in, in, in that, that particular. And the other thing I would say to this, Nathan, is that we have to fortify ourselves to uh, face the inevitable persecution that's going to come if our Lord delays. There's no question about it that the church is the greatest threat to this new movement that is abreast. The thing thing that stands between uh, Satan taking absolute control of planet Earth and the political powers being able to wield as much might, the church is the only thing that stands between them. And that's why in the end time you'll discover later that there's going to be a coalition between the, the political power and the ecclesiastical powers to bring people under the control because government needs religion to hold the masses in, in check. Very quickly in the last 30 seconds, what advice do you have for the individual who says, Pastor, I've listened to you, but I am scared, I'm nervous with all of this that you're talking about that's going to happen in the near future? My answer to you is a simple answer Jesus gave and John the Baptist, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn to Christ and receive him as Savior. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.